This video is sponsored by Wing Wing Technology, your ultimate fly sim hardware solution. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing very well. I'm super duper 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 excited because we've got the mighty Ate online today, which was great. We could finally afford him. Joking. Uh, Ate, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. That's beautiful. I love that smile. That smile is so cool. Right. Uh, and Ate, uh, I'm sure you know he, he, who he is. If you don't, I'll go through his bio in a second. Really nice guy. And that's what it makes it cool for me. So, Ate is a former athlete and fighter pilot turned keynote speaker, consultant and airline pilot flying fighter aircraft from aircraft carriers in the French Navy for over a decade. And he had what you might call an intense career. After graduation as an exchange officer from the US Navy uh, aviator curriculum, he went back to France. Got a picture of Ate in the cockpit there. He is the only Canadian citizen that flew on the Rafale Navy and Super Attendant. He flew a day and night uh, combat operations in Iraq, displayed in air shows in Europe in front of 110,000 people. I may have even seen you myself, I don't know, and instructed the new generation on the Dassault Rafale. Is that right? Raphael, close as I can yes. get, uh, with over two thousand, uh, sorry, two and a half thousand hours of flight time and two hundred carrier landings, he flew numerous combat missions, providing support to troops, including Canadians, on the ground. During his career, he faced emergencies, had to take life or death decisions, and led young pilots into combat. He got the uh, cross for military valor for his actions in combat. For his uh, last flight in the service, he flew over the Vimy Memorial. Uh, now a pilot for Air Canada, Ate shares and adapts the methods he used to survive in fast jets with the corporate world as a keynote speaker, coach and consultant. He spoke at TEDx, Toulouse, in 2019. In 2019, he spoke in Europe for companies like Nespresso, Bradesco, Safra, American Express, uh, British and French business schools. He uses virtual reality flight simulators in some of his high executive workshops, enabling them to get out of their comfort zone and learn a lot about themselves. That's true. Being shot down by MIGs really puts you out of your comfort zone. Isn't it? Leadership and communication is just uh, uh, just a couple of hours. His first business book debrief out summer 2019. Obviously, this is slightly out of date. Former triathlon, duathlon and precision uh, flying a French uh, national team uh, competitor also holds a strong expertise in mental preparation, communication and stress management. And at it raced in three world championships, precision flying, long distance triathlon, short distance duathlon and won the US Open triathlon in 2000. You know what? Uh, Ate, the one thing that I hate about doing these interviews, and I always say this, is how ridiculous it makes me look. Just like a kind of generic computer nerd with no use for attributes at all. Interviewing guys who have, like, conquered the world and climbed Everest. It drives me nuts. But anyway, that's that's all very good. Uh, Ate, um, as you know, we have what we do is we open it up to the valued viewers, who uh, uh, I'm sure are fans of you as well. Literally, so many people have asked me to go and check you out. It was actually, I think it was you that came to me, but I've been, you know, meaning to contact you for ages. And the valued viewers want to ask questions. So here they go. Disclaimer. Sometimes they can be stupid questions because I don't edit them. People will ask what they want. If you get offended, I apologize. It's just one of those things. Anything you want to say or whatever before we start kicking off with some questions? I'll stick I'll stick in the plane. I won't eject. There we go. We'll, we'll try. Um, right, absolutely. I'm aware that you're uh, forever busy because of who you are, and I will we'll try and keep it as brief as possible. So, first... Have you ever fought against an enemy fighter jet? Now, I don't know what he's actually saying there. Uh, is that, does he mean live combat? Does he mean an enemy in training? You have to interpret the question and uh, answer it however you interpret it, I guess. Sure. 
Um, in training, yes. Uh, I flew against AV8s. I flew against F-18s. Um, I flew against typhoons, British typhoons, German typhoons, uh, Spanish typhoons, um, lots of different type of jets, but uh, in training only. Uh, France mm. military hasn't fought dogfights, stuff like that for decades, um, so I didn't get that chance, but we prepare for it quite a lot. So it's actually one of the best training you can get, and one of the most enjoyable training is doing uh, BVR to the merge kind of training. So, so did quite a lot, but in training only, which is not that bad. <laughs> Roger, now without trying to get political or nationalistic or whatever, what would you say is the most difficult of those fighters that you've uh, trained against? I know it's all about the pilot rather than the machine, but if you had to, you know, really respect a plane to fight against, what would be yours? Uh, I respect all planes. Um, typhoon, high altitude, BVR is very dangerous. Um, depend on the country. Uh, British are, are pretty good with them. Uh, Germans less. Sorry, Germans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it really depends. Uh, um, one of the scariest aircraft I dogfight was when I was flying Super E and the AV8. I actually did a video on it uh, mm. with my head footage because uh, you really see it like moving like this in the air it was an italian air uh, it's pretty impressive it all it always depends on the aircraft you're flying it but as a super e pilot the the harrier was quite a surprise um a great surprise very agile aircraft roger what nationality was that harry out of interest it was uh italian italian it italian Navy. right how interesting okay thank you very much for that um, the next question, um, this one comes down to kind of nationality. What's your advice for non-Canadians in Canada to join the Royal Canadian Air Force? Also, if you want, are there any contacts that you can give out or whatever? Yeah, um, so the Royal Canadian Air Force does recruit foreigners as, uh, as pilot as well. Um, just like most of the Commonwealth countries, they tend to look for a specialist with a known experience from an allied country. So let's say you're French, you're British, you're Australian, um, you were a pilot for uh, for your military and now you move to Canada. Um, there are There is a way uh, you just show up at the recruiting center and you tell them and there is a specific recruitment cycle for that. Um, I know for several French for, um, um, nationals that joined the uh, World Canadian Air Force through that team and it gets you the nationality quicker as well. Uh, so just show up to the recruiting center and the best advice is to have a unique, very specific um, and recognized experience as an expert in something specific that interests the military, like IT experts, fighter pilots, stuff like that. Roger, thank you very much. Next, we're bouncing into the future. With technological breakthroughs, do you think sixth gen fighters or whatever uh, will eventually be pilot-less? I think we're heading toward a, a, a mix, mixed fleets with fire jets that are going to act as remote control center flown by a pilot, or I would even maybe put two pilots in them, uh, one pilot, one NFO, and then leading in combat areas um, drones. I, I think that's where we're going to go toward, because uh, that, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so you'd have a human, so you'd have a human in a Rafale or whatever, um, and then he would have a, a, a flight of, of AI guys that can go off, do that, go off, do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Interesting. I, I think that's where we're heading, yes. Roger. Okay, well, let's, let's see that. I like 
guys, well, not guys, I like people in my fighter jet, so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, it depends on the mission. It, if you have to get rid of uh, suppression of enemy air defense and you can send uh, UAVs, why don't? Why wouldn't you send UAVs to, to, to do that part? But uh, at the same time, if you look at what is happening in Eastern Europe right now, uh, you know, with the conflicts, they're using a lot of small drones, and I think um, it is underrated, small drones, and major militaries missed a little bit western militaries missed a little bit the turn there and um, and there is so much we can do and and improve in terms of small small uavs uh, i think it's really going to transform the air combat warfare because you can destroy surface to air missiles uh, sites with very small drones and i think that's something that's gonna that's gonna be a big game changer in the next 10 years Roger, absolutely. Um, now, one thing, just while I remember, uh, when people have linked your videos to me and I've watched, you were speaking English, uh, then uh, lately, and I, I've, I've just been watching, uh, but then I went and watched your actual channel and it's all in French. Am I missing something? Do you have a separate English channel? Yeah, I actually have, um, I, I post most of my content in the two languages. If oh. you look at my playlist, I've got playlist in English, playlist in France. Some of my stuff, are only in French, but also about 40% of the channel is in English as well. So sometimes you have the same video in French and in English. Um, so if you go on my channel, what you should do as an English speaker is look at the playlist and look for the English playlist. Um, so debrief in English, short uh, debrief in English, and look for English titles as well. Sometimes I even put the flag. But um, my channel is bilingual. Uh, I put content usually right. in both. So I do everything twice, which is sort of <laughs> yes, absolutely fine. Right. Well, yeah. So do I. Usually, I do it first, get it wrong, and then go and then do it again. So, right. Um, next. Now you'll have to help me with this one because I don't get it. Um, does really HMDS like systems drifting out over time? How do you deal with it? In case it's true, can INS? degrade over time in like modern planes like the Rafale. HMDS, what does he mean? Do you have any idea? I think he means a helmet-mounted display system. I think he means uh, all the stuff in the helmet. Um, maybe if you heard about the F-35 incident uh, where a guy had an issue with his helmet and uh, it led to an ejection a oh. couple months ago. Um, I, I think that's where he's, he's getting at. Um, yes, INS does move if you do not have automatic updates. Um, nowadays, we have automatic updates with GPS, a military GPS, so you don't have any movement. But when you look at jets back in the days, and I flew vintage birds, uh, you could have up to three miles an hour of INS movement. Um, you could have it if you don't have, uh, I mean, for that generation, yeah, you can usually have it's usually one to three miles, but when you're based on a boat, it's more so about three miles-ish. That's the max you'll get. But nowadays, with Rafale or that generation of aircraft, you're going to have automatic updates with GPS or other systems inside I can discuss. Mm. As aircraft like the Rafale are supposed and designed to be able to conduct nuclear strikes. So they're supposed to be able to do low level in the mountains autonomously so they have specific systems to be able to have a very good inertial system even without gps so nowadays it's not an issue anymore but lots of technology involved Roger, and that brings me on to this 
this little argument I've been having with a guy. And the argument goes something like this. Nowadays, it looks like a lot of these modern jets, Rafale, F-18, F-16, whatever, is really reliant on automatic GPS updates. I think you call it EGI. I don't know what it means. But uh, for exactly the reason, it keeps your INS systems up to date. But surely, in a real war, the first thing you're going to do is jam slash block the hostiles GLONASS or, or SATNAV, you know, you know what I mean, uh, uh, satellites. Um, and so would a modern fighter, do you reckon, be really seriously damaged in its effectiveness, losing its EGI? Any ideas or not allowed to say? Um, what I would say is I, I would present the matter in a different way, something more strategic. Um, what is the highest level of aggression a major country could do to another country without risking a nuclear retaliation, in your opinion? Hardly anything. <laughs> I wouldn't dare do anything. Yeah. Imagine, um, you've seen the movie um, Gravity? Yes, yes I have. How does the movie Gravity start? Do you remember why there are those debris all around the planet? Oh, um, I guess one banged into the other, but I can't remember why. If I remember correctly, the Indian did a test of attrition of a satellite. They tested the missile to destroy a satellite and the resulting debris startles the entire scenario. Mm -hmm. But what I'm getting at is nowadays you've got several countries that are able to destroy satellites. So how would, let's say, take an example, the US react if tomorrow morning we wake up and a country decided to take down all the GPS satellites? Mm -hmm. Nobody would agree for the U.S. to retaliate with nuclear fire on the country's territory, killing millions. It just mm -hmm. doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Yet, what percentage of the U.S. military would be impacted by the loss of those satellites? It's going to be huge because all the GPS guided bombs, all that stuff, you can ditch them. So what I invite you to do is think about the impact of losing GPS coverage with modern jets and how much it can impact um, the weapon load of uh, <laughs> the ordnance you can take. So you can ditch all the GPS guarded bombs and stuff like that. So, so it is huge. So uh, it's an issue that is known now. So you have to bear in mind that we have to be able to conduct strikes without GPS. Yet, in the past 20 years, we went extremely GPS dependent. And now if you Google it, you'll see they're putting fundings into trying to find something around that because, hey, um, it, it, it solves the military work. Like, Initially, people were fighting on the ground, and then we started flying slightly above, and then we were doing reconnaissance even higher, and then we had the E-2, they got shut down, so we had the SR-71, too fast to get shut down, but then we got satellites, nobody could touch us, and now, oh, we can touch satellites, so we have to reinvent ourselves. And we're at that turning point. Uh, oh. Satellites aren't safe anymore, so we have to reinvent all the, all the supply chain, so to speak. Wow, you've really thought about this, haven't you? <laughs> that's interesting, yeah. right? Well, that's a great answer. I've got to go back. Yes, right. Fair play, fair play. Um, right, let's bosh on. Uh, are night flights in jets scary? A lot? Question mark. Or can uh, you see as much as in the day with a flare or helmet-mounted, you know, goggles or whatever? Um, day day flights can be scary too, <laughs> but, mm -hmm. uh, uh, depending on the generation of the aircraft. Uh, landing on a boat with a Super E was scary, um, wasn't fun. Uh, we had no FLIR, no stuff like that, and as a young pilot, weren't allowed to have NVGs, so it was really difficult. I had buddies trying to to reform on stars. Wow! So 
It's actually, I mean, you think it's another aircraft because you know sometimes stars blink a mm -hmm. bit. So the guys try to reform on stars, but hey, not going to work. Uh, so that happened several times. It can be scary. Uh, as far as the FLIR stuff goes, I never flown with the FLIR in front of me. I I've flown with NVGs, been to combat with NVGs. Um, what I could say is that sometimes flying at night gives you a tactical advantage. And one of the reasons is because flying with NVGs at night, you can use your um, your flare in a different way and you can mark position using your uh, your uh, laser tracking device in a more in in a more in easy way than what you can do daytime. Um, but landing on a boat at night is is always difficult and you tend to be more fatigued as well at night, which adds to to the overall uh, feelings that it is more difficult. Roger, I'm sure we'll come on to DCS in a bit, but at least in DCS, and again, you know, I'm just a silly little computer nerd, but even I get and in the game completely terrified at night and lose my situational awareness all the time because of those lovely, you know, the big cues of the of the equator are no longer there. If you're not, not the equator, yeah. you know what I mean? The horizon is gone. Uh, I find it incredibly worrying. So mm. usually what happens is daytime you will have small cues and you will tend to realize that a situation is moving in a bad direction sooner. Mm. At night, you don't really tend to realize it and all of a sudden you have this abrupt change. Mm. So you get surprised quite a lot, especially in closure speed. It can be very tricky. Uh, so that's more difficult. And um, just a quick example for those of you that run. And I know now, I mean, the sun comes down pretty early. If you go running trails at night, within COVID limits and all those regulations. Yeah. But if you go running at night, you tend to underestimate the distance you run. And the reason is when you run during daytime, your brain takes in a lot of sceneries, information, data. And when you run at night, you have less, less stuff, less data coming toward your brain. So you tend to underestimate the distance you did. And as military personnel or night runner, you get trained usually to beware that, hey, be careful. If you move during the night, you might move much more than you expected um, and it's basically the same principle um, all this data missing is is information you're missing so you all the stuff you're used to are your brain doesn't cope with it the same way so yeah. next mm. time you go running at night you'll you'll think about it I don't do a vast amount of running at night but if I do I'm gonna double check <laughs> right very good thank you um, if you had to choose I guess one thing what is the best way to train a pilot in air warfare skills Experience. You, you, you have to. You have to train. You have to. You have to get it. Um, so initially, you have to be good in aerobatics, and then you have to work on your um, on on being very disciplined because the way you're going to use your radar, all that stuff, has to be very very tight. So first, a lot of um, share flying initially, and then put him through as much situation as you can. Uh, nothing beats experience. And now with flight simulators, you can really go far in the tactical world, but you still have to put your your your, your boots, your helmet in, 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 the, in the aircraft and do it with G-load, fatigue, all that stuff. Um, so at least 180 hours a year is really what you want to strive for. Uh, 220 if you do night missions as well. You, you have to get some. Roger. I mean, you picked up there on simulators that we can use. Obviously, that's down right down my alley. If you had to pick up a, a very quick percentage, how far do you think you could train a, a real combat pilot in a, you know, just a make-believe scenario? How far, in terms of percentages, to be ready to go and fight, could you train him just in the simulator? And how much of that percentage does he actually need to be in the real plane, 
doing what you said? That's a very difficult question, and um, the limit is being moved by testing with a new training curriculum, Pilot Training Next in the U.S., and the British have joined as well, uh, where, you know, they go through VR training, and they have AI adapting, they look at where their eyes look to adapt their training, and and they manage to, I think, cut down about 50% of the time in the the aircraft. Um, I like that idea. I think you can actually... I think what you should do is not exactly what is being done right now. You should mix it in a smarter way. They tend to put pilots in the sim too early now. And I've visited and tried the PC-21 French Air Force Training Center a couple of weeks ago. And, and what I would do, I would do some training initially in the sim. Then you put people in the aircraft. They fly a lot, but they work on the basics. And once they're very proficient with the basics and they had to deal with some emergencies, then you put them back in the sim and you do a mix of 50-50. And once they're very proficient uh, with the basics, once they're very proficient in the, in the tactics they're supposed to, get, to do, now you can use the sim to go above and beyond on the tactical side because you can't be as realistic as in a sim in the real jet, if that makes sense. Mm. You can't see a missile coming at you. You can't eject. You can't work on somebody that just ejected in real life and see his parachute going down. You can sometimes have the helicopters coming in. So it, it actually, tactical-wise, you can go further in the sim. But as a pilot, you have to be able to go back to the basics and the basic skill. And what I'm afraid of is that we put too much emphasis on the tactics because the aircraft almost flies themselves now and that we do the same mistakes that we did in the commercial world and that led to crash like mm. Rio Paris, stuff like that, where the guy just, they knew how to press the button, but they lost all that back to basic sense. Yeah. And, and because of those modern jets that are only very rarely facing issues, like on the Rafale, I never had any engine issue on the Rafale, ever. 800 hours, zero engine issue on the Rafale. Super attendant, I had one emergency a month. Wow. <laughs> So I had, to, I, I had to deal with almost 25 emergencies during my career, but most of them were flying Super E. On the Rafale, was maybe some epoxia, a couple of stuff, but less. And, and where I'm getting at is you create your experience with those unique situations. And the more reliable your machines are, the less trained you are. That's an issue in the commercial world. It is going to become an issue, I think, in the next 10 years in the fighter world as well. And if you look at the incidents that occurred this year, the F-35, the F-16 at Luke, a couple of Air Force stuff as well, you see that it is slowly coming to a lack of basic training and basic skills in the in the military as well. Uh, so that's something to watch out for. Really interesting, so yeah, yeah. You've got to be very careful. Yeah, so it's an amazing kind of worms you just opened there, but I, I don't think we haven't got time to push on it now, but that's really interesting. That really is. I never thought about that. I'm aware of the commercial side, but I never thought about it in military. I always thought they would always be fully grassroots. I never thought they would ever have that problem. But I, I did a movie review. I, I did an accident review on the F-16 that crashed at Luke, and you see mm. the poor pilot who was sent on the air uh, night. First SIN mission ever, four ship, nighttime, and he had to do uh, air-to-air refueling for the first time ever. just absolutely doesn't make sense. Yet, I've seen it before. I have a buddy who did his first night air to air refueling during a combat mission. Just mm-hmm. doesn't make sense at all. He had 
daytime refueling experience, but not nighttime. And he did it during a combat mission. So where I'm getting toward is we have omniroll aircraft. We have more and more ticks, um, um, boxes to tick, just like the commercial world 20 years ago. And we're slowly going toward that dangerous hill that is we need to tick all the boxes and we forget about the basics. Uh, one um, one new mission after the after the next one. So we really have to be careful about that because when the Rafale starts working correctly, it's like what we call the cliff effect, and it really relies on your experience and your ability to deal with the unexpected. Very interesting. Okay, right. Well, let's segue on to something new. We're going into suppression of enemy air defences, anti-SAM. I've always found it interesting how advanced European air forces such as RAF, ADA, MA do not operate anti-radiation missiles like the Harm or the Alarm, with the exception of Germany and Spain. In your opinion, can the Rafale successfully carry out SEAD operations against long-range area denial SAMs with just the Spectra ELINT system in conjunction with contemporary guided bombs? Or are SEAD operations against such large systems uh, no longer as important? That's a very good question. It's, it's a strategical call. Uh, France decided to put more emphasis on the jammer and on the... On the spectra system and right now with a rafale you could do sid especially with the sbu uh, we rely on our uh, electronic warfare to be able to enter the, the bubble uh, so it is possible uh, we used to have um, a missile to do that called the martel the martel was able to do seed and we we changed that and yes we, we went more into the jammer world um, People tend to underestimate what jammers can do nowadays. And um, because it's so secure in terms of information, it is so secret, um, it is unlikely to be able to really recreate it to its full extent in, in softwares like DCS, or it is impossible to find open sources on that. But just look at the growler and the and you see there is an entire aircraft that is just huge, full of system, and those stuff are just amazing, the Spectra as well. So there is a lot of stuff going on with electronic warfare that we can't really discuss, but it is efficient. Roger, I mean, that's the same, that's the weird, annoying thing about it. Uh, me, the layman, can't can't don't aren't allowed to know anything about it in our simulator which is you know as close as we get is white noise all it is is white noise and that's all they can do uh so if it can help understand the nature of it like i used to have hair before i joined the military hmm. and with all those radio radars <laughs> they're falling apart yes nice bit of radiotherapy for you right lovely okay um right uh, we're bouncing well uh, well following the 1991 Gulf War, the ADA decided to invert the original composition of Rafales from one-third two-seaters to two-third two-seaters as air-to-ground became more of a strategic goal. As far as I know, the French Navy did not follow. Do you agree with this decision or do you believe that there is a benefit in operating two-seat platforms for air-to-ground? The reason... I was explained. Uh, the reason I was told uh, we maintain single seat is due to the lack of space on the boat. Um, that would have meant that we needed extra uh, extra room for uh, for the NFOs or stuff, and, and it's a small ship, so would have been an issue. Another reason is in the navy we thought we can do everything on our own, 
uh, and we do it. Yet, yet uh, sometimes, yes, life is easier with a two-seater. Um, happened to me once in combat. I wished I had somebody else with me to help me write down all the coordinates, all that stuff. Um, once. <laughs> but uh, uh, joke aside, I think that with two-seaters, we could be less selective in the curriculum of the pilots. So maybe could have reduced the pilot shortage a bit. Um, honestly, I, I, and I've been, I finished as a, one of the head instructor and, and we had to stop some pilots sometime. And, and so, some of them left and went on to fly two-seaters in the Air Force. Um, what I mean with that is that, of course, when you're single seat, naval base, your standard is here. If you had to be two-seater, maybe you could have a pilot that is here because less workload for one guy. It just makes sense. Um, so it's a choice. Uh, it makes your life easy, um, tougher as a, as a single-seat guy doing all those naval missions, but it's still possible. Um, so um, what I think that it's more on the Air Force, I would have probably decided the same because it, it's just easier. And, uh, and at some point, we had so many different types of aircraft, so many different missions. Asking one guy to be proficient in all those missions is extremely, extremely selective and difficult. And, um, and, and you don't want to rely on just a couple of guys to be able to defend your power group. So I like single seats, but it, it is difficult to, to be good as a single seat pilot. And uh, it is very selective, but we had not enough space on the boat anyway. <laughs> Roger, very good answer. I've got to say as well, these questions are really good. And there's so much, I'm so glad I didn't write these questions myself. They would have been bloody terrible. So well done, guys. Uh, right, uh, another big complex one. I understand the Rafale uh, incorporates a high degree of sensor fusion and uses the full extent of the Link 16 data link network, which allows for the broadcast of targeted information for ground and air targets, as well as general positioning. As this seems to be one of the main advantages of, for instance, the F-35, do you think that the Rafale slash Eurofighter are sufficiently future-proof such that France and Germany will not need to be operating a Generation 5 aircraft for the foreseeable future. And my question comes, as Germany recently announced, uh, the their entire fleet of Tornado IDS GO4 will be replaced with the EA-18 Growlers and more Eurofighters and not the F-35 like we've done in the UK. Any thoughts? I think I need a pill. My, my, my brain is it's, melting. It's that big. Was... It's big. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, yes. So um, the, to sum it up, the question is basically with the new, basically the, the fifth generation aircraft are like Rafale and Typhoon. You don't really need an F-35. That's pretty much the idea yep. if I get it correctly. Yep. Uh, yes and no. Yes and no. Um, what I want people to understand, I'm not defending or uh, accusing the F-35 here, but just look at the timeline. Um, Rafale, first flight in 86, that's the year I was born. Um, operational in 2000 plus, but barely operational and really, really operational around 2014 uh, when he started being able to do all type of missions. That's when we started selling them. So we're talking about 30 years took them 30 years to be really be able to to deliver all type of missions. How old is, is the F-35? Um, the F-35 first flight, let me check, was, uh, whoa, uh, first production F-35 was 2011. 
Um, what I mean with that uh, is they really started the program. First one rolled out in 2016, so we're like, um, hey, we're 14 years. So what I mean with that is that the F-35, in my opinion, is like a teenager. It's like a teenager and people don't really, I, I didn't look good when I was a teenager, not looking much better now, but you know, you mm. have all those uh, mm. acne spots, you're not very muscular, you're not in your best shape. And we're asking a, a 14 year old athlete to fight against 25, 30 years old athletes at the same contest. Um, so what's gonna happen is, yes, maybe right now the F-35 is facing a lot of issues, is having a lot of troubles, but he's only 14 years old. Give him another 10 years. And in 10 years, with AI systems plugged into him, um, where you're gonna press maybe a button and he's gonna win the dogfight for you, stuff mm. like that, it is gonna be another world. So what I don't like is people judging the F-35 on what it is right now, because in terms of timeline, is only beginning. And just like any exponential curves, up oh, like this, good size, um, it takes some time to start, and then it's really it's going to be a platform where they're going to be able to do a lot of upgrades in terms of AI stuff like that, and then it's going to oh my god, the F thirty five is pretty cool. It can fly with a lot of UAVs and do a lot of crazy stuff that might be more difficult on a Typhoon or a Rafale because initially it was designed hey thirty years ago, forty years ago, so not with the same power all that stuff. So where I'm getting is for the next ten years, absolutely. Take more typhoons, take more crawler. In 15 years, I think we're going to start seeing a big a, a, a change. Um, crawler is a good choice. Um, F and link system is awesome. Fusion is awesome. Um, for the next 10 to 15 years, yes, typhoon and, and rafales are going to they're going to be perfect. Uh, after that. We'll see. <laughs> Roger. Very considered answer. Very good. Okay. Next, we move on to medium-range IR guided missiles. So, the ADA is currently the only major NATO air force that operates an IR guided medium-range air-to-air missile, i.e. the Mika, uh, Mika IR, while all others, including the Russian Air Force, have moved away from long-range IR guidance and rely on, on active radar homing. Why do you think that the French-built combat aircraft still use IR missiles uh, outside of the short-range, uh, you know, uh, sidewinders, magics, whatever? Um, is this just a uh, coincidence of the Mika being used for both medium and short-range missiles as the Magic 2 uh, was never officially replaced? Any thoughts on that? Very good question. Um, I'll ask with a different question. How can you target at more than, let's say, I'll give random numbers, okay? How can we target at more than 15 and then above, beyond 10 miles? How could you shoot um, a stealth aircraft? Uh, not with a not with a radar-guided missile. Mm -hmm. So, interesting. What about, what about an IR missile? Um, yeah, I mean, as far as I'm aware, the 5th gens will have a slightly lower heat signature, but it will still have a heat signature. It will. Mm -hmm. What if the guy cracks a burner? Then it will have a whopping great heat signature and you can bang him down with a medium range IR. And you can detect him at dozens and dozens are miles away yeah. and you can and you know he's here. That's why we have IRST and all those systems. Mm -hmm. So um, medium range infrared missiles enable you to target stealth aircraft. And I, I don't have numbers, honestly, we didn't conduct tests on that, but I'm pretty sure 
you have a better um, kill ratio if you use IR against stealth aircraft than if you use uh, Fox 3 regular missiles. Why? Because we all know for a fact, and nobody talks about that matter. Everybody says, oh, great, you can detect um, a stealth aircraft with Elban radars, and Russian might be putting Elban radars on their aircraft. Awesome. So Fox 1, okay, but Fox 3, your missile in the end is going to have to open his own radar, and it's a X-ray band radar, and the stealth aircraft is designed to counter X-ray band radar. So maybe even if your onboard radar sees it, then your missile is not going to be able to see his target, and you're going to be trash. What if now you shoot a Fox 2 missile? And nowadays, Fox 2 missiles are very, very sensitive. And just look at the Python 5. They're not even only IR. They're also electro-optic for some. And now it opens a new range that enables you maybe to chase its um, stealthy aircraft under its signature. Watch out. So maintaining, so yeah, retaining the, the Mika IRs is future-proofing you against whatever, uh, SU-57, <laughs> you know, whatever. And I'll go even further. You're flying your you're flying your Circle 35, okay? Mm. You're flying around, and you detect that there is a demo. There is a Hawkeye maybe 100 miles away, and you're flying Block Four. Da 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 da. And now there is a Rafale radar off using Link 16 from the E2, let's say E2D, very precise Link 16, that is skimming the surface of the water at 100 feet. You don't detect him because because mm. of the Delta and the way you approach. And now he's targeting you with the L16 data and he's shooting a Fox 3 missiles. When the Fox 3 missile is going to open his auto director, you're going to have an alarm. Your system is going to detect that, hey, you're being uh, watched by, uh, by radar. Now, if the Rafale shoots a Mika IR, you're not going to know and you're going to be shut down without even knowing you've been attacked. Yeah. So IR is really, it's passive in a way you don't know it's coming. That's why it's awesome, because it's going to, whistling, sixing, and all those stuff, it's gonna, it, it enables you to shoot at somebody and he doesn't know you targeted him. That's, that's how it's so cool. Happened to me at the end of my career, like you're dogfighting with mm -hmm. someone, you're, and then yeah, there's another aircraft showing up. And he's like 15, 20 miles inbound. And you're in contact with the radar or you sit on the L-16 and you know this guy's trying to come in to assist his buddy. You're fighting with a guy. You stop your turn for just two seconds, put your wings level, you shoot a Fox 2 toward that guy and you continue on. <laughs> <laughs> and what's, what, what happens? The guy don't know he was targeted. He's coming as a reinforcement and at the debrief, oh, by the way, got, you got shut down. And he sees that he's coming and he's like right on your missile. And he never knew the missile was coming. So having those Fox 2 passive missiles, infrared um, stuff, enables you when you're not newbie, when you're like on top of your tactical stuff to really surprise the enemy. And I think it's that's what's so unique with this Mika, and that's why most countries should get that type of stuff, I think, because it's just awesome. Excellent answer. You are so amazing at explaining things. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's your job, but right. Um, uh, let's go back in time from 
futuristic IR and Link 16, well, not futuristic, but modern. How difficult was it to learn the super attendard or modernized uh -huh. attendard personally? How did you organize your way to learn it as to fly bombing and missile firing and landing on a carrier? So I guess he wants this compared to the Rafale. I'm not sure how you want to interpret that. Sure. Um, so what you have to bear in mind is that when I got transitioned to the Rafale, I had 4.5 years on the Super E, uh, um, landings at day and night, and 800 hours in the Super E. So, and I was an instructor on the Super E. Um, so I wasn't showing up as a newbie yet. My first takeoff, single seat, never flew a two-seater, even was instructor, uh, single seat for first flight. I was like holding back to the stick, yelling in my cockpit. Uh, mm -hmm. so, uh, I was discovering afterwards. Mm. Uh, I, I, I'm very expressive in my jet. If you look at my first cat shot, I got a video of it. I, I yell like <laughs> I was uh, at my sweet 16 party, mm -hmm. something like that. But uh, but but anyway, um, so I was showing up in the in the jet with already quite a lot of experience and, and, and almost a decade in aviation. Um, so it, it's make it difficult to compare. Um, a lot of difficulty because you had to you had to learn the aircraft and at the same time i was managing the operations uh was an ops officer but i was in charge of all the schedule was scheduling officers so i had a lot of workload and i had to jungle to, to play between learning the system doing my management work and um on the other side um learning all the new tactics because air to air was a new world or pvr was a new world and you really have to work on those and you have to learn very fast and i mean to for your reputation and because you you have to get you you have to really move on pretty fast um so i think super attendant was difficult in a way it was so old school and the training was so old school and the mindset was super old school like showing up at 7.30 in the morning for 11 p.m. takeoff. <laughs> uh, that, that was the super world. Uh, so on Wednesday, you're just like, you're, you're, you're a bit fatigued. Mm. Uh, so that was very difficult. Uh, on the Rafale world, what is difficult is understanding that you're a human and you won't be able to even read the 60,000 pages of the flight manual. The flight manual is in 60,000 pages, but there is just so many information. It's wow. like an Airbus. Uh, all those technological driven aircraft there is so much to know it is extremely difficult to understand what you should really know mm -hmm. and, and, and take it I, I, I ended up being subject matter expert on the Rafale Navy and giving keynotes to Dassault stuff like that and I never read the entire paperwork around the Rafale just you can't um, you have to understand that there are some stuff that you need to know cold and some stuff you don't even try to remember you have to know how to get the information very fast but you shouldn't try to know everything which is a big difference with the super e so i think it's a change in mentality and understanding you can't understand everything i never understood how my flight control works uh -huh. honestly and they don't even try to explain to you so it's like okay just it, it's gonna work <laughs> Yeah. If it doesn't work, apply the procedure, but don't try to understand what it's doing because nobody really can explain it to you, nor it is your job to understand. So um, a bit like Boeing. Boeing is a bit like this. Um, just stick to what you're supposed to know and do what you're supposed to do well. So I think the difference was changing the mindset because it's really a big change. Uh, super E, you could understand everything. It's simple. Rafael, you can't. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay.
Uh, right, we're getting back into dogfights, which we all like. Um, assuming that you trained against the US Navy slash USAF, how did the Rafale perform against legacy Generation 4 American fighters like F-15, 16, 18? And how did the Americans view the three European Delta Canard fighters in general? <laughs> I'm going to go with a traditional cocky answer. Yeah. Um, they view it from the front because they were like this the entire time. <laughs> Zing! Uh, <laughs> but uh, joke aside, F-16 is nice, very nice. I really like the F-16. It's small, uh, difficult to see, very agile in combat. Um, never dogfighted an F-15. F-18, we crushed the Marines of the <laughs> coast of Brittany. That's how I got my some of my tests to be the uh, flight lead uh, on Rafale, I had to fly against the British Typhoons and against the F-18s, uh, U.S. Marine. So v I remember those flights quite a lot mm. and, and very good souvenirs. But uh, F-18 can really take a lot of AOA, which is very dangerous. But what you have to understand is that all our training scenarios and situation are biased because we're cuffed. Uh, let's say we're going to fly against an F-18. They're going to say, we're not using our 9X. And you're like, okay. Uh, because the 9X is such a game changer, they just look at you and you're dead. So all the training we do, to be honest, is not that realistic. Because we're everybody's getting some cuff. Or you say, oh, I'm blue force. I'm doing 100% of what I can do. You're uh, red force. You're like simulating your Ming-29 with AA-10 Alpha when they could be shooting Amram. So uh, sometimes we do blue against blue, but usually we always have a very specific scenario or situation we want to train on. And when we fight against the US, it is rare to do blue against blue because they don't really want to show their tactics. Mm. Um, if something that bothered me a lot was, I never heard about um, toy decoy during my military career. Um, being Typhoon or F-18s, never heard the word in the brief, never heard the use in the debrief. And when I was tactical officer, I digged a lot into the ANALE-55, and they have a lot of them, and you never hear about them. But they are a huge game changer, because basically, from my understanding, they could just go straight in on the first merge initially, and your first shot should destroy their decoy and not themselves, which changes the entire geometry that we do. Um, so what, what I want to emphasize is that between what we do in inter-ally operation and what would be the real life, I honestly think there is a big difference. Roger. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, I won't go into it because I'm just not qualified or experienced in any way. I do remember kind of not analyzing but looking at a f-22 versus uh, uh rafael dogfight where when the rafael wins and 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 i'm sure but you know that will find but my my comment was just be a little bit careful before putting big uh comments all over the internet saying the rafael is better than the f-22 be a bit careful because they're not actually fighting fair you know maybe yeah. the rafael has to stick to a speed maybe the raptor has to turn it this one or that off just you know be a bit sensible. I, I actually reviewed that footage on, on my channel. Uh, I think I spent like 40 minutes or two times mm. 40 minutes discussing it, something mm. like that. Uh, and now, yeah, uh, looks like actually the F-22 pilot inside is making huge mistake, uh, rookie mistakes, like reversing turns just doesn't make sense. Um, it, what you have to bear in mind is that the MiG-21 can shoot down on F-22. Mm -hmm. 
an F-22 can shoot down a Rafale. A Rafale can shoot down an... I mean, a, a Dassault Falcon with IR missile could shoot down a, a F-35 doing a VAD. Um, it is extremely complex, and the situation is usually what's going to dictate the outcome. Um, but uh, that's something to keep in mind. You can just compare platform. It, it doesn't work that way, indeed. Uh, I won't be able to stay much longer. Yeah, absolutely. I've got small uh, family stuff to... <laughs> uh, give me, to how to, many to minutes? How many minutes, Sate, just so I can plan? How many minutes? Um, pretty short. Pretty uh, short. Because she, she, she's complaining. <laughs> right. We're, okay, we're just going to run this one then, because I've seen exactly what we were talking about there. We've seen a recent video of a Raphael engaging an F-22 in a dogfight and even gunning the Raptor. What? It's not a valid gun. It is not a valid gun. I talk about it in my video. Mm. The F-22 is not killed by the uh, Rafale in that video that is footage from 2006, I think, uh, mm -hmm. DLC stuff. So you need be careful with that because the pilot mixed up his switches and had shot opportunities he didn't take so he can claim the kills. Mm. Uh, that, is, that is important. I missed that, but... I'm an idiot. <laughs> a second part of the question is, uh, what makes, well, I, I can't really understand this, but when makes this possible? Uh, basically saying, how can, how can a traditional yeah, aircraft mistake. beat a... Pilot mistake. Yeah. Whatever your aircraft, if I'm maneuvering against you and he's located, he reversed his turn. The F-22 by reversing his turn just offered his six o'clock and is getting punished right away. Never, ever reverse a turn if there isn't a nice speed overshoot from the enemy. Just don't reverse your turn for no reason. And he reversed his turn not once, but I think twice, which doesn't Watch make it. sense at all. Okay, right. I think he lost sight, to be honest. I think he, he, he lost sight of, Roger. of Rafale. But hey, you can lose sight, so you get killed. Makes sense as well. Roger, yeah. And I guess someone leaked the footage out to piss him off <laughs> i don't know yeah, long story long story <laughs> yeah roger ate uh absolutely wonderful having you on you've done all the work for me i haven't had to push you you've just you know done it it's really really nice um obviously thank you for coming on sorry for the guys that we couldn't get onto your questions but you know this is real life this this is how it is i would love to one day maybe have you back for something uh, a flight or a fight sure. or whatever because you're just such a cool guy and it just makes it all worth doing anything you want to add uh, before we sign off fly safe oh hold on hey, i'm gonna i'm gonna do my canadian oh, he's off if you're looking for something to read debrief 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 is key good <laughs> brilliant brilliant Ate. thank you very much really nice guy and i'll see you i'll see you later Ate. play safe cheers bye